don't want to take piano lessons anymore. <laughs> okay. Okay, son. On Losing It today, we're going to talk about that first or first few hobbies and interests that we developed when we were youngins, and whether we chose to stick in them or our parents forced us to, we're going to kind of discuss how it impacted our lives and the trajectory of our lives as we aged in, into adulthood and maybe even if we still carry some of them today. Yeah. I feel like everybody has that. Like the, the thing that maybe you had like a, an inkling of wanting to try it when you were a young kid and then like years later you were paying for that curiosity by like having to practice piano or practice violin mm. or like whatever it was for, for you specifically. Uh, was, it, was it piano lessons for you? It was piano lessons. Um, we all got put in piano lessons. That wasn't, I should say, that was not one that was decided on by my brothers and I as individuals. That was something our parents decided, yes, piano lessons. We're putting them all in. <laughs> We're gonna just throw them at the wall and see if any of them stick. Because, as you well know, as we are cousins, listeners who may not know that, uh, our family has a history of you know, musicians popping up throughout the, the lineage. So I think for my dad, he always looked back on that and thought, well, if it's in the blood, you know, mm -hmm. we want to give him the opportunity to at least dabble. And then if an interest it, uh, does grow, yeah, have the option to pursue that. Because I think that's super common. Like you just want kids right. to try different things in general. Right. Um, it's just good for brain development and stuff. Right. And you know, with, there's a lot that could come from that. Uh, I think out of us all, I was the only one that really wanted to stick with it. Mm. My younger brother, I don't even, he was so young, I don't even know if he really enjoyed it to begin with, but then my older brother at one point decided, mom, I don't want to take piano lessons anymore. Mm. Uh, but I don't know, I really enjoyed it. I think there, there was that time when he said that to my mom and said he wanted to stop taking piano lessons and I thought, well, yeah. I don't want to take them either. Oh, it was like a solidarity thing? Or was it, well, I just want to be like my brother? He inspired me to drop out of piano lessons, but my idea was for different reasons. And I didn't get my wish. Hmm. Not right away. I, I grew tired of classical theory. Uh, because I just began getting more interested in rock and popular music and wanting to play that. And we would not go over that in classical piano lessons. Mm. Um, not to break down the history of my musical yeah, mind. No, but, but that is a clear distinction. Like usually when you're taking a kid to like do a piano lesson, it's with a classical piano teacher. They're going to be mm -hmm. teaching you one like classical music, but uh, music theory is also like a huge part of of that like lane uh, of education. Which um, isn't a bad thing. I got a lot of key fundamental building blocks musically yeah. from classical piano lessons. But that is to say, when I didn't want to take lessons anymore, it's because I had the interest. I just knew 
that I wanted to take it in a different direction right. than what that avenue was offering. So here's a hypothetical, and this might come up in like a different episode as well, but um, had your mom, instead of like hearing that you didn't want to take those piano lessons anymore, if you guys had a conversation and she found like a jazz piano teacher or like a right. you know, somebody that was a little bit more performance oriented. Polka. Yeah, a polka right. piano <laughs> teacher, <laughs> which I would love to meet, a polka piano teacher. Um, do you think you would have gone for that and enjoyed that? Or do you think your fate was sealed and that you were like, you wanted to find your own way after at a certain point? I'm not exactly sure if I could answer that definitively because, you know, obviously things turned out the way that they did, but th I don't think there were that many options available either because I like to view my mom as a very creative person, especially when it comes to problem solving and teaching her kids. You know, we were all homeschooled, um, and her coming from being a private school teacher, she knew how to teach various subjects. Um, she's a talented teacher. I just don't think there, because you got to think back then too. It wasn't a Google search away. Oh, that's right. For her to find a we new piano up, teacher. We grew up without Google. Right. So it was whatever, whatever she could find where she could find it, whether it was on a bulletin board or through her friend's network, you know, yeah. of other moms. I think, I think there were probably three piano teachers and she just picked one. Mm -hmm. Because I even remember going, I, I had two different teachers over my stu studying mm -hmm. as, as I was growing up. But, so no, I, I don't think it was an option. Had it have been, it definitely, um, I would have been interested because I liked to learn. The issue wasn't being taught. The issue was, this is so dry. Mm. This isn't the direction I want to go in. I want to play music like this. Um, but you know, like I said, I got I got a lot of good building blocks from that experience. And then moving forward, I think that interest has kind of just been the vehicle for so many things in my life, and it's brought me so many different things that I'm I've used along the way at various jobs, uh, which that's not even, I think, the most important thing that music has brought me. The most important thing music has brought me, and I get asked this question a lot when I, when people discover that I was homeschooled for, you know, every step of the way in my school career. Um, how did you socialize? How are you not really awkward like those kids we see with the plaid shirts tucked into their Levi bootcut jeans? Mm -hmm. And then they see you with the plaid skirts and the Levi jeans. The skirts, yeah. yeah. Well, that's why. Mm. I'm a little bit odd. I'm a little bit queer. Yeah. I'm a lot queer. Mm -hmm. Wear the jeans skirts. No, and I think the real reason is because I got involved musically with playing with all sorts of people and playing out all the time with all different types of people and then even traveling and touring and playing different venues and different states with tons of different people of different walks of life. And that socially set me up for... Uh, success in being able to successfully relate to different people that are, di you know, I have nothing in common with at first mm -hmm. because you always have something in common with people the more you actually converse. But I think the biggest thing I got was not only knowing how to relate to people, but knowing how to work with people. Gotcha. Because so your, your piano lessons, they may not have taught you like what the key of B flat looks like. But they taught you how to interact with humans. They taught me what the key of B-flat looked like. I just chose to ignore that lesson. Gotcha. And instead moved into, 
yeah, but this chord progression sounds great. So I want to play that and whatever else happens on top of that with other people who are I'm playing with. That's what I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. I want to see what develops when me and so-and-so are in a room together with instruments and we just let all hell break loose. Mm -hmm. um, but no, without diving nitty-gritty detail into the hobby itself, the hobby led me to so many different places and uh, meeting so many different people and developing skills I would not have otherwise developed that have helped me in my social and professional life. Yeah. Yeah, as you're, as you're talking about this, it's, it's interesting because I think the part that you were focusing on in music is, a, is probably the reason why you continue to play music. Because, I mean, that, that's me projecting, because I'm thinking in my own experience, I started violin lessons when I was three years old and played, took lessons up until I was like 15 or 16. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I started hating it was, the, not the reason why, but looking back, I think one of the main things that was missing was the collaboration aspect of it. Sure. Because violin is very much a, it's, you can play in an orchestra, but a lot of the time it's a soloist instrument. Um, so your experience in playing with other people is usually in a, in a either competitive or comparative environment where you're in like a recital that has 20 kids all playing, you know, through the same Suzuki books over and over again. Right. Some kids are further, some kids are better. So when you do yours and you play your piece, you go and sit down and then you watch, you watch somebody else's kid play that piece way better than you ever could. Right. And so you're just constantly in this, you know, world of comparing yourself to everybody else. Whereas your experience, you started to find, you started to find outlets where you could actually like build something together with other people. Sure. Um, which I think if I had had that in some way, I'd probably still be playing violin today. Uh, but what I what I ended up finding was that it 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 sort of shaped my view of music as like a a very personal thing. Like even in collaborating these days, it's very like it doesn't. I haven't quite worked through the kinks of working with other people on music. It's very much more. I'm going to sit down and this is my space to do my thing. And if anybody's like watching me, it's because they're also a musician that's going to be comparing to how I'm playing. Sure. Um, so that's, I guess that's interesting. I actually had not thought about that until I just vocalized it. But Well, and it, um, just what you're saying about the recital situation. I had been in that situation early on. That was one of the things that I thought, screw this. I, I'm not interested in hearing Eric be way more te technically proficient in Chopin's pieces than I am. I right. don't care about that. Right. So that's what exactly what turned me off. For me, but for me, music was always that creative, emotional outlet, and mm -hmm. everyone who knows me knows I'm quite an emotional individual, so to have an outlet for that is very important, or else I think my head might have literally exploded <laughs> at one point or another. At so recital, you're playing shows yeah, and pieces. Yeah, oh my gosh. Boom. Guts everywhere. Yeah. No, I, I think... The collaboration aspect absolutely brought some kind of, um, I don't want to say just emotional relief because it was bigger than that. It was now I'm also expressing myself in all of these large emotions and questions and beliefs and fears and 
you know, the things that I cherish, I'm expressing those musically, but so is this person alongside and with me. So what we get out of it, I mean, you're talking about something being so personal. Absolutely, there's those times, just me and the instrument, and whatever comes out of that uh, is incredibly personal, and no one else could make it quite like that if I'd worked on it with them. But when you start from zero with another individual or group of individuals and create something meaningful to all of you, what you get out of that, none of you could create on your own. And something about that is so amazing and it's, it's wild because you start out and you, everyone has an idea of what you're trying to express and what you're trying to create. But by the end of that process, you couldn't have predicted all the twists and turns that that whole build would have taken. And what you learn out of that, I think, is invaluable in that, or at least what I learned out of it, it is invaluable in that I learned that you can't keep a tight rein on the creation of the thing you're making there. Mm. You have to allow it to go in whatever direction it's going to go in. You know. Interesting. So it sounds like there's like there's got to be a balance. Um, I'm sure people have talked about this in terms of songwriting and music in general. Sure. There's got to be a balance between like the rules of you know whatever the key is whatever the progression is and whatever mm -hmm. it is like has been done before and proven to be the right way to write this song and like the creative process where it's just you and the people trying different things but I it's think but I think that that those guidelines are learned through messing it up together through doing it yeah you know I remember being 16 and starting to write songs and then being 25 and writing songs with people in both scenarios and like what I knew at 25 versus what I knew at 16 having zero experience only just years of classical piano lessons vastly different because what you learn through working with different people what you learn from working in different genres and then beyond that what you learn after you've created something and played it for other people who are both musical and non-musically uh, talented teaches you even more because you're getting a response from the thing that you created both emotionally and you know, mm. verbally and immediately and passively uh, through each step of that process. That kind of helps you, I would say, those responses help you as the musician and creator to hear that music through their ears. Because mm. you're only ever, that's the difficult part, you're only ever going to look at it from when you made it in the beginning to when you made it in the end and th throughout that whole process you watched that song evolve and you know grow up so that's what you remember when you look at it you don't see it for what it is necessarily not 100 so i think that was a value that i gained from writing music with other people as i pursued that hobby further was collaboration and a collaborative effort mm -hmm. which has directly benefited me in the professional sense in the workplace because it's so easy to have your vision of how the project should be and to just cling to that and everybody else is wrong and you can write everybody else's idea off. And as creatives, we all understand that uh, vision is where it has to start because if you don't have an idea of where it could go, then you're not going to know where to start. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> what I learned through collaboration with others musically is very much so that my vision is not necessarily the best. My vision is a outcome for this thing. And I could, you know, it could look exactly like that or it could look nothing like that. Or maybe I just pull 
what ends up being the best elements of that vision and I mash them together and weave them together with these other visions along the way. And I think that's the beautiful thing about that path in music is uh, you start to appreciate, view, and value another creative's mm. vision in a lot of ways you, you you learn or you don't and some people you know kind of pigeonhole themselves this way by not accessing these values that you can learn but if you do you, you learn to appreciate other people's work you learn to appreciate other people's process and their end goal and, and maybe even appreciate it more than what you had which is only going to enhance what you have so that taught that idea I guess which started this whole thought train of mind that you had said about what are the rules that the basic rules that we stick to? What are the guidelines for writing a good song? I've learned so many of those from trying everybody else's vision and trying, you know, allowing myself to pursue that over mm -hmm. mine 100%. <clears throat> that makes sense. I guess so. The advice then to, to parents would be if your son or daughter or whoever wants to, wants to drop piano lessons. He would say, just have them play with the neighbor kids. It's a case by case basis because, uh, you know, I'm at this stage, I'm very thankful that my parents did not let me drop out of piano lessons because I wouldn't have had the life that I've had. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have been enriched the way that I've been enriched. Um, and I, I, I don't know if that, because they let my brother drop out. So I don't know if his life would have been different but I think the difference when they've talked to me about it you know down the road uh, the difference was I was showing more initiative I was showing more aptitude for the thing I was showing more interest even because it wasn't he wanted to drop piano lessons because he was sick and tired of playing the damn thing I wanted to drop piano lessons because I wanted to play it this way mm. So I think that's the real case-by-case -case basis for your kids. I, I think absolutely put them in music lessons if you think that that's something that they could, you know, grow to have interest in. If it's not that, it's something else. I mean, hell, Dad put all three of us in baseball, and that did not go well because <laughs> we were not good and we were not interested. In fact, I think I speak for all three of us, my brothers and I, when I say we hated every second of baseball. <laughs> my younger brother probably liked machine pitch because he was given the machine you know, professional baseball signals when he was the catcher telling the machine <laughs> which way to pitch. Uh, but other than that, no, that was not enriching. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that kind of transitions into my side of things well, because I, I also played piano early on, and my motivation in getting into it was because my sister played. And... I don't rem I know that like we all had to have some sort of hobby because like my brother had a choice between dance lessons and doing something else. I can't remember what the other one was, but he chose the dance lessons, so they put him in ballet. Like he did ballet. That's cool. <laughs> With a bunch of girls. See, um, is your is your brother hetero? Yeah. So that was like the perfect choice for a guy trying to meet, <laughs> meet women. Yeah, so like he did that and then I think my sister also had like a choice that she had to make and she chose piano. And then when it came to me, like they wanted me to have a hobby and it was just naturally, I thought my sister was super cool. So I was like, oh, I want to do piano too. And then I did it for a while and the first few years I was interested in it. But then like slowly it started to trickle off and like 
I realized that I had only done it because she was doing it and I didn't want to practice anymore and like I wasn't practicing I was showing up to my lessons and I hadn't practiced the music and my piano teacher was mad at me and like yeah just like uh, the stuff that happens when you <laughs> take piano lessons and you're no longer interested in it did you guys have those little red books that the teacher would write like this is what you're supposed to practice yep and then I don't think I did we just had no like I had like a notebook that okay. she would write down all of my oh okay my practice stuff. I just remember I didn't practice either. And we had this like little red teacher book that had all of the lesson mm -hmm. things that you're supposed to do. And it must have been like 10 or 12 pages, all with the exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> like just because I had not progressed at all in, in so long. Yeah. So I got to be maybe like nine or so. So many years of piano lessons. Yeah, like so many years of piano lessons. And then I went to my mom. I told you guys this before. I went to my mom and I was like, all right, I'm going to do five more years of piano lessons. And then I'm going to stop. And I like, I was like negotiating with her. You were how old when you said this? Like nine? Just thinking about it, like the idea of a nine-year-old wagering half of their <laughs> longevity on a gambit to not have to play the piano anymore. <laughs> and I did it. I did it for five more years. And then I went to my mom five years later and I was like, okay, I did this for five years. I'm quitting now. And she was like, I can't argue with that. Like She you, struck the you, deal. Yeah. Like, you you held up your word. So, what were you yeah, thinking for those five years? I'm going to get through this until the end mark. Were you counting the days? Just or carving tallies into the side of the piano. Like. I don't I don't even really remember. I just, I feel like the five years kind of like flew by. And then I had just realized, like each year, I feel like I took note of like, okay, I did another year. Day and diary. Like, day 367. <laughs> and then like the fifth year hit. And I was like, all right, this is my last year. Like, this is it. I'm done now. Day 355. <laughs> the entertainer still eludes me. <laughs> Why does it sound like Mario? <laughs> I am not entertained. <laughs> That's a stupid joke. That's okay. So what was next? What what was after piano? Or did it did the hobby that really meant something to you or the interest that really changed you, did that start at the same time or after? So I feel like Piano lessons gave me an appreciation for having a hobby, but it got to a point where it was just like the thing that I had been signed up for and I was interested in other things. You and were enlisted. I, yeah, yeah. Like at that rate, I was, I was reading books about animals all the time. I loved horses. I was like reading, like every book I owned was about horses. I knew everything about them. I knew their anatomy. I knew like, how to take care of them properly. I knew how to train them just from reading tons yeah. of horse books, which like none of it I remember now. But I was talking to my mom about like how I wanted to get into horseback riding lessons. And I think that was, I think I was still doing piano lessons when I started riding horses. Um, but she like started me off at this barn and I... I wasn't sure about it at first because there was always kind of this fear with riding horses where I was like, this animal is huge. Yeah, it could kill me. Kick you. Yeah. Like I, I also saw like, I saw stuff happen with horses, like in the barn environment where like they'd get loose or like somebody would get kicked or whatever. 
So there was always kind of this like little bit of fear in me, but there was also this part of me that kind of liked that mm. because it tested me and it was a it was kind of a challenge. Um, Great for a child's confidence. Yeah. To develop a sense of self. Yeah, and I feel like that challenge kind of is what helped the passion grow. So I eventually stopped doing piano lessons, which now looking back, I kind of wish that I had kept up with it a little bit because even just being around you guys, just like watching you sit at a piano and just do whatever. Well, um, even in what you're saying though, I can relate to that because I, I took horseback riding lessons when I was younger as well mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed it, mm -hmm. but I chose to pursue music more heavily yeah. and there was no time. It's hard to maintain yeah. two or more hobbies yeah. that you have serious interest in. Yeah. My, my secondary was tap dancing, which I think if I had kept up tap dancing, that would be like the coolest thing to just whip out at parties these days. Right. Right. <laughs> Everybody's three drinks in and you're just flapping around. We should learn and then we can just... I think it's tougher to learn stuff the older you get. Yeah. I mean, we could. We could try. We could try. We could try. If we can find a group on, I'll take tap dancing lessons. Okay. <clears throat> Anyhow. But yeah, very difficult to have more than one hobby. Yeah. Well, and I definitely feel like horseback riding taught me a lot more as I grew up. Like earlier on, it kind of helped me make friends and stuff. And like, it gave me something to be passionate about. I loved horses. It was like a therapy for me. Eventually I got into the competitive side of things and I didn't like that. I realized that I'm not... I'm a competitive person in like certain aspects of my life, but not in others. When you say got into the competitive side, what did that mean? What were you getting involved with? Um, I was going to horse shows. At first it was Competing? just like, yeah, it was just like horse, like lead line things um, where I'd just be on a pony and there'd be someone leading me around and you have to like do all these little things like show that you know how to post at a trot. <laughs> sure. And you know how to steer a horse or whatever and can like keep your heels down and stuff like that. A technical show. Yeah. So I did that when I was really little and then I didn't compete for a bit. And then I think it was probably like middle school, high school age. I got into, it was just a year that I did it. Um, I started going to horse shows again. It was me and this pony called Social Butterfly. <laughs> she was not a social butterfly. We were both very angry. We weren't. I was like 13 or so. Oh, yeah. So I was like super angsty. <laughs> and the pony didn't like when any other horses got closer. She'd like pin her ears immediately and sometimes she would kick. So we were both just kind of this like angry little team just like glaring at people <laughs> as we walked around. And, but we were really good. Everyone together. Just imagining Bad to the Bone playing <laughs> as you're trotting around. <laughs> we were really good though. We did a bunch of equitation classes and then we did, which is just like flat work. It means like walking, trotting, cantering. Sure. Um, and you, the, the whole point of equitation is like how you look and like making sure that you're, you have the proper posture and like your heels are down and you're able to ask for the different like walk, trot, canner mm -hmm. and they immediately the pick gates. it up. Yeah, the different gates. And like they have to be on the right lead if they're cantering and you have to be on the right post if you're trotting and like all the little technical things. Um, Did and you then, enjoy any of that process? Oh, I loved all of that. Yeah. I loved being perfect. Sure. Like that was my thing when I was And working younger. with another creature 
to, to be perfect. To reach that level. Yeah. <laughs> we were working together to be the perfect beings. And that's how we want all our classes. And I was like, yes, I am perfect. It like itched that, or it scratched that little itch for my perfectionism. Um, and then I eventually started getting into like hunter jumper classes where we were jumping. And my social butterfly, my pony, her real name was Sophie. Like her barn name was Sophie. Her show name was Social Butterfly. Mm, stage name. Why don't humans have show? I was just going to say, why doesn't they every do human have, have stage show names? names. <laughs> Only few are brave enough to go by them publicly. <laughs> Can I ask you this, though? Was it the sense of reaching a level of what you were calling perfectionism that really drove you to compete? Or was it in a, more of a sense of accomplishment? Because I assume with these competitions come, you know, winning levels of yeah. gold, silver, bronze of some sort. Yeah, I think like, I think early on it was like, okay, I, someone's teaching me like how to hit all these marks and like be perfect at this thing. And then as I started winning classes was when I was like, oh, I can win things for being perfect. So you're rated <laughs> on them for the work you've put in. Yeah. Sure. Um... And we were taking like the the blue ribbon every time and then we would get so there's like these the champion ribbon for the entire class at each show and then like reserve champion. How big are these shows? This is a, is this a county thing? They yeah, they were like really small shows. Sure. I didn't get into like the But still the bigger stuff. Where was this in Pennsylvania? Yeah. So there's gotta be a lot South of people that ride horses and have horses with all of that agricultural space out there and land, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, they were, like, lower-level shows, but we, I, I think, like, by the end of the show season, I had won the entire division. So I took home this giant champion ribbon. And you both got matching tattoos about it. I'm yeah, sure. obviously. Social butterfly. Mm -hmm. I have that. It's a tramp stamp now. Yeah, that's, gotcha. that's not true. I don't have a tramp stamp. Also, don't have a social butterfly tattoo. I do, I do have a transcript, <laughs> but we'll talk about that in another episode. Mm -hmm. Different episode, yes. Um, so, so for you, would you say the competition helped you motivate to stay in, in the hobby? Not really, no, because I, like, I did that one year, and then I wasn't really into it anymore. Like, I, I, it was never about the competition for me. It was more just about, like, this is my hobby, and I want to improve as much as I can in my hobby. Mm. I didn't like the competitive air of things. I also felt like the socialization when you get into competition is a lot more petty and catty. And like, it, horse people can be very pretentious. Mm -hmm. So I didn't like that side of it. I believe the word for that is equine. It has equine its own, people? It has okay. its own air of, you know, it's, its own pretension. Uh-huh. I made that up now. <laughs> what are you, what saying? are you saying? <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah. So, what? How long did you stick with horseback riding? Or is that something you still actively engage in? I wish it was something that I could afford to actively engage in still. Right. The only reason I don't do it now is because when I was still living in Pennsylvania, I had a barn that I had ridden at for like three years, and at that point I could just like go out I could ask Kelsey um, 
like what horses need to be ridden, and then I right. could just hack. I could so just exercise you were doing, them. You were doing her. I was doing her a favor, and, and like also getting to do my horses, hobby. Right. Yeah. Um, and like I could do that now. When I came to Maryland, I had posted in a Facebook group like asking if anybody needed a horse re- or a horse exercised because the thing is like a lot of the time when people get older and they own horses like obviously life happens and like they don't have as much time to exercise them themselves so people always need their horses exercised there's just kind of a matter of trust that needs to be established and sure all that stuff um i want to get back into it i miss it a lot i haven't done it for like like consistently for like a year but Um, what did it bring you that made you stick with it after those competition stages there's a level of like life lessons that it taught me and also a level of it was therapy for me and i had a bunch of heart horses which is what the equestrian people call them what does that mean it's just horses that you had a really strong connection with um might you just call them friendships no it's a heart horse. I'm sorry. You're right. It's it's a thing with horse people. Heart horse. I merely <laughs> say that because horses are very intelligent creatures. Uh-huh. So I might even venture to say you could have a friendship with a horse. No, you absolutely could. I saw a horse on TV one time that could talk. Who was that? It was Mr. Ed. Mm. Very kind guy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had a, a friend named Wilbur. Okay. We could watch it sometime. Anything for the bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so as far as like life lessons go, I think there were, there were a lot of things that they taught me. One in particular that I'm thinking of, her name was Ladybug. And I feel like the horses that I had the strongest connection with, I didn't want to ride them originally. I was kind of matched up with them and I was like, oh great like this one mm-hmm. and then I rode the horse and there was just something about I don't know I don't even know if it was about the ride or just like it's just, it was a feeling I'm a very like emotionally intuitive feeling person not gonna say it <laughs> was that so was it that there was like a challenge to break through and actually work together with this animal that you were certain you were not gonna have that relationship with Maybe a little bit. I think with, yeah, I think with Ladybug, going back to her, um, she was tricky because she had like her little quirks where she was lazy. She was a chunkier pony. She was like later on in her life. Earlier on, she had been like a really good hunter jumper pony, but she was a little bit later on and... trying. She was trying to hang up the shoes. Yeah, she was just like supposed to be a lesson pony and... She had these habits of like stopping, like you'd be trotting, 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 and then she'd stop dead because she just like didn't want to do it anymore, right. and she like wanted to throw the kid off the right. front. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I had to. Samuel Jackson in a horse. <laughs> Damn it! I'm done. <laughs> so I had to like work her through that, um, and then the biggest thing with her was jumping, because if she felt you hesitate before a jump, she'd stop and then you'd fly Correct. off. Mm. And I experienced that a lot. I hadn't fallen off a horse in several years, probably like 10 years or so. And I have this 
it's it's almost like a fear of heights, but it's more just a fear of falling. Like it's not the height sure. itself; it's just falling off. Because sure. mm. we hear all the horror stories about people who had fallen off of horses and they're like paralyzed now. Um, so it's a healthy thing to have a fear of. Yeah, there was always like a healthy level of fear in that regard. It's a very powerful animal. Yeah. Um, so my biggest problem was hesitating, especially when I got into jumping groundwork. I was fine with because like I knew what I was doing. I knew how to control that. Right. But when it came to jumping, there was you have there's so much that goes into it. You have to like unless the horse knows it's been doing it for so long that it knows automatically just like what the timing is and like the the athletic process. Yeah, like there's you have to like count the steps up like the leads up to the jump if you're cantering up to it. This is like like they right. always say the paces in between two jumps it's like a seven or a five or sure. and it's because you know how many gates or like strides are in between um and you have like as a rider that's doing all of the work to direct the horse there you kind of have to know that automatically and you know how yeah you have to know how to time that right and lady could feel me hesitate every time because I hadn't quite gotten that down. I didn't really like jumping, so I didn't do it as much because it scared me. And I was kind of, she was the one that kind of taught me to trust a little bit more because... To trust yourself or to trust her or both? Both. Okay. Because I knew that if I hesitated, then she was going to stop and I had more of a likeliness to fall off. And there was one lesson in particular where... I fell off like three times because I kept hesitating and the first time I fell off and it shook me and then of course they always say like you have to get back up back on the horse right um so I got back on the horse and then like the second time my instructor Vivian was like okay you know now like if you hesitate again you're gonna fall off hesitated again fell off um and it took like three tries in order for me to just be like all right if I just trust this like, she could tell when was the right time to jump, but if I didn't just trust that she was gonna jump when she needed to jump, then we were gonna stop again and I was gonna fly off of her. Right. So she taught me a lot about trust because I had to, it wasn't even a matter of not trusting her because I knew that she could do it. It was more of a matter of not trusting myself. But it seems as if, in hearing you talk about that whole situation, it seems yeah. as if, what you were really trusting was not only the fact that she knew what she was doing, but mm -hmm. the, the connection you needed to have with her yeah. in order to properly execute those types of feats. Yeah. Because you're, what, the way you're describing it is you have to listen to the horse. Mm -hmm. Because the horse is just as much a part of that athletic process as you are. Yeah, absolutely. They can feel everything. Like so it's a it, certain type of communication, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what is that like? How do you, how, what does the communication between horse and rider boil down to? It's weird because most people just think that you sit up there and like you steer them with your hands and like you kick them to get them to go. And it's not right. really that simple. Like it's a full body workout where you have to be connected from the top of your head to the tips of your toes. Sure. Like through the horse too. Um, what does they, that mean? 
obviously you're talking about a physical awareness of your own body and how you're using yeah. the process, but how does that connect to the horse? Well, like, just as much as they can feel every little move that you make, like she could feel me hesitate, you also kind of have to feel every little move that they make. It's weird. It's hard to describe it unless you've been doing it for a while and like you know by sitting in the saddle what the feeling is. But when you're like fully connected from head to toe with this horse, there's no there's there's no like hesitation is the first word that comes to mind it's not really hesitation but it's just like a it's a full connection i don't even know how to describe it seems like you're also describing not only the awareness of your own movements but the awareness of the horse's movements because i assumed when you said this horse had her own quirks yeah you were not only talking mentally but in how she moved and how she would make a jump and how she would go to a trot and how yeah. she would take her steps. There's a certain feeling that goes with that, right? Of Yeah. It's, and it's gonna be different from horse to horse, I, I would say. Oh, absolutely. Think. It's almost like becoming a centaur because yeah. you get you get to the point where you're sitting on this horse and like you you move your legs with their legs. Right. Like you have to have such a connection that like your as your hips move, you need to know that hers are also like moving in that same way. Um, even just like at a posting trot, you follow her leg. So like, you know, when you're on the right post because you're one going with like the flow of her trot right. as I'm sitting here, like doing an up and a down <laughs> because that's exactly how it is. Um, but you are also just like flowing with each leg, like each step. Right. And you have to like there's so many different things that you have to do to achieve those steps in the right ways, like getting them into a frame, their head needs to be like down and they need to be picking up their legs enough so that you're getting the proper tempo and like the proper right. step and they're not dragging their feet behind them. And there's just so many little connections that have to be made throughout your body and theirs in order to like be on point. So what's the key to that connection then? I don't know if there really is one. What was the key with you and Lady? Um, I don't know, it was just a feeling. Like, I, when I'm riding, I just, I don't know if it's something that I can really explain. I'm just like in the zone. Yeah, like I'm in the like it's a muscle memory sort of a thing. Yeah. But with her, it's just enough repetition, you just, you know that feeling. And I think it's, right. you could probably make the, draw a parallel to like when skateboarders talk about like, They'll do an ollie, but they're not thinking about the exact movements that go into making that ollie. It's yeah, just no. like, this is the feeling of, I know how this feels, and my muscles know how to move in this way. Right. Yeah, it got to the point where I was in therapy, and I needed to be practicing mindfulness, and my mindfulness, like, I forget what she called it, but it was like an imagery thing, where like I needed to close my eyes and like imagine something that put me at peace. And the thing was riding. Like I had to, she walked me through the process of like tacking up the horse and then getting on and then like the feeling of walking around and like all the noises. And like, it was so much of a feeling and so much of a passion and so much of a therapy for me that even just like imagining myself riding was a mindfulness technique, <laughs> which is crazy to think about now. Yeah, I wonder if that's why Amy is so centered, my sister Amy. Very centered individual, very calm, measured all the time. Well, probably, because from what you're describing, too, 
throughout that whole process in each stage, that's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Because not only, I mean, we could walk it backwards from the actual riding and executing proper jumping technique between yeah. the horse. Well, let's go all the way back to the beginning of saddling up the horse, get, you know, pulling the horse in from the field or out of the barn. And doesn't, is, would you say that's where the connection has to start? Possibly. I don't know. There's something about, I feel like maybe even just from like tacking up and stuff, like well, I'll know if, I'll, if I'm going to connect with a horse or not. But I always, at least like sitting in the saddle, like I'll always know if I'm going to like this horse or not. Like there's a difference between just exercising a horse to exercise it and like actually doing it where I'm like, I feel connected to this horse and right. this is like something I'm super passionate about because of the horse. So it's just as much a personality thing and having chemistry with the horse as it is being connected physically. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like with certain horses, I would almost view it more as like work or just like an exercise. And then with other horses that I have a connection with, like that's where the hobby is. That's where the therapy is. Right. Yeah. So what from that experience as a, as, you know, growing up experience, um, what have you noticed has impacted like how you are as a person now or like how, how you interacted with your career and stuff? Um, I mean, a, a lot of stuff. I could probably talk about it for hours. Horseback riding was kind of always there for me when I was going through all of my hardest stuff. Like growing up, being angsty, like it gave me something to focus on, it gave me like a certain level of discipline and like a responsibility. Um, and then when I was in college, college was probably like one of the hardest periods of my life with relationships I was in and just like learning who I was as a person. Um, there was a horse in particular named Gatsby who I like half leased for a little bit. Um, and he was there for like all of my worst emotional turmoil mm. and any time that I felt like completely unhinged completely unstable I just needed to go to the barn and ride Gatsby and there was something about just even grooming him and like tacking him up and just like spending time around him that was always my escape um, he also taught me how to trust again because I had that period of my life I had a lot of broken trust and he was a little bit I don't remember what the disorder was that he had or the disease he was was that he had um, but he had like a neurological disease that was basically causing him to like lose control of his body slowly over time oh, that sucks. yeah and it was something that can't be cured Lou Gehrig's something like that horse Gehrig's it's oh, essentially like the, the equivalent. Ed Garrett's. <laughs> God, so dark. <laughs> um, it was like the equivalent of that for horses, but he would trip all the time. Like his thing that kind of showed a little bit early on was that we'd be, be riding and he'd trip. Like he was losing control of his feet, essentially. Mm -hmm. So he'd be going along fine and then he'd so. trip really hard. And at first, before I knew that he had that, I'd be like, oh, he's just clumsy, whatever. Like, come on, buddy, pick up your feet, let's go. Aww. And then, like, eventually I learned that he had this neurological disease. And then every time he tripped, I'd be like, it's all right, bud. 
like we're just getting through another day and like you don't have to be perfect and I think that's a big thing that he taught me is that like it's okay not to be perfect like it's okay to just put in your best effort mm -hmm. and get through the day because that's what he was doing every single day like someone was asking him mm -hmm. to do a thing and he was trying his absolute best even though his body was telling him that he couldn't Aww. yeah <laughs> I'm getting emotional <laughs> so am I <laughs> I miss him so much. He's retired now, and he lives in Chicago, and I miss that horse so damn much. Um, but it's it's incredible to think about, like, all the life lessons that these horses taught me. Like, they, they can't talk. They can't well, some really... Some of them can. Yeah. No, but it makes sense, because, like, they are animals that have these personalities that you're interacting with daily. And you're doing, like, sort of the same thing with each one, so like the steps, are, you're not focusing on the steps of it. You're focusing on like the idiosyncrasies of this personality mm -hmm. and how do I fit in with this personality and make this work. Yeah. They're also very emotionally aware creatures yeah. as well. Yeah. Pick up on what you're feeling and have their own emotions to throw right back. Yeah. So you absolutely learn that through that experience of relating back and forth. Yeah. Well, anytime that anybody asked me, like they learned that I was an equestrian and they asked me about like, oh, do you compete? Do you do this? Do you do that? I would always just be like, no, like it's, it's my escape. It's not for competition. It's not, it's not even like I wanted to learn as much as I could, but it wasn't even really about like how good I could get. Like I wasn't ever interested in like being a trainer. It was more just, this is an escape for me and this is teaching me so much in life. And like, that's why I want to pursue it. And even now, like now it's missing from my life and I don't quite feel like a whole person without it. Right. Mm. So I need to find ways to get back into it. I think that's, it seems like you probably found what I think is the ideal state of a hobby, like very early on as, as your escape and your way to, like I know how to do this in this exact same order and I'm gonna go, you know, bring in the horse, brush the horse, put the tack on the horse. Like you're not necessarily learning anything new in that process, but it's it's like a, a way for your mind to sort of decompress and unwind, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's it's like a fulfillment that's right in front of me. Like with mm. work even, there's not always that sense of fulfillment of like I did this thing and I can feel that I've like made a difference in in my day. And maybe this is probably why people like exercise as much as they do and like that becomes their hobby is because like you can like feel it in your body and like even with the horse like I know that I taught them something that day or like they taught me something that day there's kind of this level of fulfillment that's right in front of me that I don't really get out of other things like work because work is kind of just like a constant never-ending like there's never never there's always more yeah there's always more and there's never like a task that I'm given where I'm like okay I've done this and I can cross it off my list completely like I'm constantly scheduling mm -hmm. social media posts I'm constantly designing graphics like that never really ends but with horseback riding it gave me that immediate sense of fulfillment we accomplished this today yeah that's done yeah mm -hmm. sure yeah hmm that makes sense I'm enthralled. I want the movie. Yeah, honestly, I, kinda... I want the biopic. <laughs> the way you pitch it, it's so therapeutic. Like, I could imagine Matthew McConaughey playing you. All right, all right, all yeah. right. It's very dirty. So where are hobbies got us today? I, I think the interesting thing is that we're, we've talked about hobbies that are still our hobbies. Like... 
the interest has not left. The interest hasn't left. And while I don't still play violin, like music is still very much a big hobby of mine. Like, it is in the same way that Maggie's talking about, like horseback riding being an escape. Music is very much like the escape for me. Um, and even to the point of like writing a song, if I write a song, it may never see the light of day. I might never show it to anybody, but like the right. process of sitting down, trying a couple things, putting it up there, and then listening to it again, um, like that's therapeutic in and of itself because you get that accomplishment of like I did this now, like right. I can I can throw that away, but like I did it. It's accomplished. Mm -hmm. Put the check in the box. Yeah, that's that's probably there's probably some research into like what humans need to feel fulfilled, and I'm I'm sure you know we could we could look into it and figure out that like you need to have a sort of tangible sense of accomplishment. In, in your in the things that you're doing or putting effort into mm -hmm. um, well and a huge part of it as we're discussing is also all of the uh, process itself is just mental stimulus mm. that's important to exercise regularly yeah and I think the, the whole the whole benefit of having a hobby that you keep coming back to is that the threshold of like effort that you have to put in to figure it out mm-hmm to feel that like stimulus back that to get that curve. feedback um if you've been doing the exact same thing over and over and over again like you don't have to worry about the right way to brush a horse or right. the right way to slap on a saddle or like the right way to you know press the keys on the keyboard or fine-tune a synth sound like you can just get right into the actual thing that benefits you right right it's not so much about process it's more about uh, that create in music for the example that creative element of do the, the doing of the hobby itself the mm -hmm. work itself the creation itself we don't necessarily have to spend as much time thinking about the steps to get there you've got the saying. technique already right so it's yeah. you move straight on to the escape yeah so I think if that's I think if anything we could say that should be the goal of like that should be the mm, not the goal you're gonna but, say that should be the hope for any activity I think that should be the hope like when you put your kids in for piano lessons it should be with the hope that like they can find an escape if they want it um, not that they're gonna be the next virtuoso piano player and anything else isn't worth it like if they're mm. not practicing it's because it's not an escape for them sure <laughs> Or if they're not practicing and instead they're playing funky doo bibbly bops on the piano. Yeah. They're playing. You got a bibbly bopper. And what's Let them bibbly bopper. Let them bibbly bop. And doodly dop Let if they're so inclined. Mm. Okay. All right. Indeed. Well, thanks for listening to us rant again. Um, we sort of got off base, but I think it was, it was a nice journey. We learned a little bit about each other. If there are any hobbies interests or any other topics or ideas that you have that you would like us to discuss please feel free to message us please feel feel free to email us at that's where we'll answer our email i don't think we have a email we definitely don't have an email we have an instagram we've got an instagram we should make an email is all i'm saying i don't i think instagram dms are the new email yeah 